and then we go to appointments and just leave feeling like, "Mm, did I really get what I came here for? So I think people should remember that, you know, it is your system. You're paying for a service. Uh, We're all humans too. And if you don't ask for something, you're not going to get exactly what you need. So arm yourself with the right defenses and you'll get out what you need. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Ms. Kimani Daniel, an assistant professor at the Ingram School of Nursing and a former maternal and child health clinical nurse specialist. She is here to share her insights on healthcare navigation based on her 15 plus years of experience. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Kimani. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me, Nikita. My pleasure. Could you please introduce yourself? So my name is Kimani Daniel. I am currently assistant professor at the Ingram School of Nursing uh, at McGill University in Montreal. And my my clinical background is 15 years of maternal child uh, health nursing. So I primarily did much of that in the birthing centers and ambulatory clinics, um, seeing pregnant patients um, and their families and nursing them as a clinical nurse specialist. And in addition to that, I'm a wife and mom of two young boys. I'm looking at you and I'm like, you don't look old enough to have been nursing for 15 years. Thank you. I started as a baby myself Yes, (laughs) from the womb. So what took you from bedside to teaching? So I was always interested in teaching. Certainly my degree prepared me for that. I entered nursing through a, I'm a very novel uh, degree where I had a bachelor's in something else and it wasn't necessarily what I was thinking I was going to do, but I was actually interested in maternal child health well before I was actually interested in nursing. And so once I hit the ground running as a bedside nurse in the birthing center and witnessed so many amazing things, a position came up and I really was thinking this could be an interesting way to learn more alongside it. And then I got into it and really loved it. So teaching at the bedside in clinical practice, as well as teaching at McGill at the same time with nursing students, as well as other healthcare students or other undergraduate students about health really was amazing. And so, uh, and I've never looked back. I think it's uh, great to be involved on that side of things. I think also to sort of illuminate what it is when students, people uh, get older and have to have interactions with the healthcare system to sort of shape shape how they think about it, shape how they think about the world. I find that really interesting. So based on all your years in the system, what are the tips that you normally recommend to people on how to navigate So I usually get solicited, I would say, from family members, but also uh, friends. And they are asking me, you know, this happened to my loved one. How can I be an advocate for them or be at their uh, at their bedside through an sort of an acute phase. Usually, you know, my uncle had a stroke. Uh, What do I do? What should I ask the nurse? Those sorts of things. So usually my sort of my number one piece of advice is be there with them. So if you have a family member admitted to hospital, that there is someone at bedside so that the whole healthcare team knows that there's someone there advocating for that person. It may seem like a very small thing, but it's really important that the team has someone, first of all, a point person to communicate with. And then it also 
gives a picture to the healthcare team that, you know, it's really important the way in which we communicate to this patient. It's sad to say that that would make a difference, but having someone at bedside is really helpful. I would say in general for ambulatory care. So, you know, if you're going with your family member to a clinic appointment and those sorts of things is have someone with you. So be there for your family member that you don't go to an appointment on your own. And I had to learn this myself, even as someone as part of the healthcare system, um, you go to those appointments, any appointment, you take a sort of a young, healthy child appointment, you go to your pediatrician, you walk in the, the door, you immediately forget every single question you had to ask your doctor or your nurse practitioner, or your care provider. It just goes out the window and you're busying yourself with all sorts of things. They're talk to you, you kind of look like a deer caught in headlights. So I would say always try to have someone with you or organize your questions beforehand if you can't have someone with you uh, because you will absolutely forget what you need to, to ask. I would say in addition to that, to not be afraid to ask for what you want and to listen to your gut if you think something is uh, awry or not quite right to listen to that feeling within you and and probe a little further. Do you know why we forget? It's funny because it's so true. Is it more than the intimidation factor? Is that basically it? I think foundationally, it really is the environment as well. I mean, it isn't necessarily the most familiar environment when you're going to see a, a, a care provider. Um, you're sometimes going to a place that you're not familiar with. And by the time you get through, how did I get there? Did I take subway? Did I take public transport? Did I, how did I find a parking? Am I late for my appointment? Do I have the right cards? All of those things. And you're sitting in front of them. I mean, there are a lot of other things top of mind and you forget why you're actually there. So you forget to ask the questions and then you leave with this feeling of, okay, were my needs really met by this appointment? And do I feel like I made the right decisions? Because you're often called upon to make decisions in a very short time period. And there are not a lot of other times in your life where you wouldn't have an opportunity to say, hey, I'll get back to you <laughs> or let me think about it. My healthcare system is not that forgiving. And so those are all real big challenges, I think, for sort of navigating the healthcare system. So the more prepared you are, the better it'll be for you. When you said, you know, it's important for the care team to know that there's someone there. Yes. As you said, it shouldn't matter, but it kind of does. And, and what is that really sending the message to say, oh, this person has somebody that cares, so we need to look a little closer? Or what's the mess? What's the underlying message? There? I think it's human nature. And I think first and foremost, we need to understand that, yes, we're superheroes. Yes, we're angels, <laughs> according to the pandemic, but we're also really just human. And so humans forget, humans make errors, humans make errors in judgment all the time. And it is a reminder seeing that person in the chair next to the patient that, okay, this person has a life. This patient that I see and that I'm caring for has people that care for them, have people that are interested in them doing well. And if I need to explain things to that patient, I also need to explain that to their family so that they can care better for them. So it should be, again, top of mind, and it should be something that we're always taking um, into consideration. And I would have to say the majority of really good, well-intentioned nurses and physiotherapists and physicians are doing this, but it's just a nice reminder. And if people forget in the hustle and bustle, it's nice to be able to say, oh yeah, the brother's there or the partner's there. And maybe I should explain to that person. The other thing is it 
makes a really nice partnership in terms of looking at discharge and discharge planning and thinking about when when you'll be going home with whatever brought you to the hospital. And so if you have, again, a second pair of ears to hear what the instructions are and to follow up on them, we know that that makes all the difference. We know that the social support makes all the difference. So I think I would say by and large, all the care providers would welcome that. So to have that sort of, uh, say, support very visible at the bedside, we always welcome that in, in making our patients better. I love that. I'm also thinking, and this is probably a whole other conversation, but usually <laughs> visits take so long. Yes. <laughs> it's really a luxury to have someone who can afford to take a half day or a full day to accompany you. Because yeah, the appointment was supposed to be at nine, but they don't call you to leave at 30 and all that. Mm. But yeah. Seems like a challenge, but very important nonetheless. Absolutely. I know in some healthcare systems, they do have either volunteers or volunteer services. So patient accompaniment people that can actually provide that service for them, Mm -hmm. which is an incredible service because you're right. You know, it is a half day sort of luxury, again, from start to finish in terms of appointment. And then you're caught under a light bulb (laughs) in that five minutes with the, with the specialist, right. To hear the instructions or whatever you're there for, for the appointment. And so that's a service that's really uh, valuable. I would say in terms of navigating, I know that the model for having an infimial pivot, have you heard of that model before? No. An infimial pivot is, I don't even know what the translation is, um, but think of it as like nurse, nurse, I guess is the straight (laughs) Trade translation, but I'm sure they have other names for it, is essentially that. So someone to guide you through the system and ask those questions as you navigate from specialist to specialist. So they have them a lot in oncology care, so in cancer care. And and so that that nurse would sort of say, oh, we're meeting with a nutritionist. We'll make sure to follow up on that sort of request that your oncologist talked about. And maybe we can talk to PT or physiotherapist about, you know, that sort of thing. So the nurse ends up being sort of the center in terms of navigating for the patient. And again, the evidence related to that type of work really shows that it really makes a difference for for patients. Very cool. Yeah. What have you found to be some best practices for navigating the system? And, you know, on the flip side, common pitfalls we should all of. I would say best practices are educate yourself as much as you can. I'm thinking of really young home. I worked a lot with new parents, both, you know, before pregnancy and after pregnancy. And so educating themselves as much as possible beforehand, because I mean, that is sort of a time when, you know, you have some time, you usually have a few months before you know you're going to have a baby. And new parents are often really good about seeking out information, but sometimes not always from the right sources. So I would say some of the common pitfalls are only listening to, you know, what your grandma or mom uh, is saying, not to say it's not valuable advice, it is, but certainly finding other sources that can maybe bring you more up-to-date information or sort of, I would say, challenge some of the misconceptions or myths around childbirth or child uh, uh, rearing uh, that are there. So I would say educate yourself as much as possible. If you feel like you do not have the information that you needed, find ways to get it. So it could be, you know, I'm joining a support group to get, you know, um, other moms around you that have the information, asking the questions and not really taking whatever is being said to you as the gospel truth. So I, I definitely feel like there's a role for advocating for yourself and not necessarily accepting everything that's thrown at you in terms of information, but seeking a little bit more and sort of developing that curiosity around whatever the health condition you have is. And use your 
network. I mean, sometimes you have a friend that, you know, had the same thing, or you had a friend who just had a baby, or you had someone that you know who has a friend. It could be a second or third degree sort of connection. And so don't be afraid to use your networks. People are actually a lot more open than you think in terms of giving that information. And I say that also from personal experience. Uh, Sometimes we're kind of resist, it's kind of hesitant or reticent to use networks or ask for help. It's okay. We all need help. Even if I've been, you know, many years in this business, I'm still asking for help from, you know, (laughs) my friends who've had babies or have been around the system as well. I love that. And actually it's making me think, so, you know, you were an MCH nurse and you have Mm -hmm. two babies of your own. So maybe, I don't know, did you go into that thinking, I got this covered, I do this every day. (laughs) And then did you run into any surprises? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I'm fine. I'm absolutely uh, open to talking about my experience. It's funny, I was just talking to a friend about my experience and saying (laughs) the ones who think they have it covered, in particular in childbirth and and, and perinatal care, I would say, yeah, that's the fall from grace. That's the... (laughs) The hardest fall because you're used to being on top of things. You used to be organized. You think you've got it. You think you know a lot and you do. You have tons of knowledge. I mean, I was lactation consultant beforehand. I was, you know, had been in it probably about, I would say, 10 years. And of course, you know, my birth, of course, did not go according to plan. Both times did not go according to plan, whatever that plan was. And I certainly had lactation issues. <laughs> Who would have thunk it, right? So, and you get very frustrated by that. You think I should know this. I should be able to manage this, but you know what? It's okay to ask for help because you haven't ever been on that side. You haven't necessarily been in that position to receive the care. And I really did rely on uh, colleagues, friends, physicians, certainly, you know, lact- other lactation consultants to somehow remind me of what I knew, because in that moment, it's not necessarily clear. I always say that every healthcare practitioner needs to be a patient at one time or another. I don't know if you can fit it in to be sick. You need to be sick to see the other side and also the impact of the things we do every day, because we tend to th- take things for granted and think that, you know, this is our normal humdrum thing. Oh, there's like an oncology here. There's a liver here. There's, a, you know, we're used to sort of maneuvering within the system and then it becomes super normal for us. And we don't see how abnormal it is for many people that are outside the system and are now being confronted with it. And they're like, wait a minute, all of this beeping noise. And we're like, what beeping noise? What are you talking about? We don't even notice it anymore, right? But those are the things that are so jarring that lead to you not being well engaged, not being, you know, a good partner in care sort of thing. So I do think it's an important thing for us to really see it from the patient's view point and put ourselves in that position in order to make it a better transition for it. Because there are all sorts of things that we don't even notice anymore. Yeah. I like the beeping noise. It reminds me of maybe when you live near an airport or something and people yes. come over and you're like, how do you handle the sound of all these planes? And you're like, what planes? I don't hear anything. <laughs> exactly. What are the best ways, would you say, to prevent ourselves from falling through the cracks, ourselves or our loved ones? So certainly being there with our loved ones, definitely uh, being there. So just presence. And then one level up from that is the questioning of every care decision that you are needing to make. So informed consent is a, ve- a great buzzword and something that we are, are is very dear to 
our hearts as practitioners, I would say. But what is that really? What is informed? And how much information and where you're getting the information? I think it is one thing to rely on what the healthcare provider is telling you. And I think it's another thing to one, ask the questions and then to look at other sources for that information, because that's truly informed, right? So being able to challenge or ask a different type of question to get the information that you want, then you may um, be in a position where we're really needing to, to, to make sure that you get the care that you really need. It sounds like you said, ask different types of questions. So I guess is an example of that, you know, maybe you ask it one way and you feel like you didn't get the answer. Now you just ask it a different way. Yeah. So, you know, when you're talking about like when a procedure is being, for example, offered to you, example could be, okay, you need to have a hysterectomy, let's say. And so your physician saying you need to have a hysterectomy. Okay. You could say, you know what? That's great. My doctor said this to me. I'm going to trust them and just go with it. And they may give you some information around the risks of that, what it will look like in terms of recovery and just take for granted that this is the way we're going to go. So as a patient, you have two options. One, you can say, yes, that's great. That's what I came here for. And you go along with it, but you could ask some follow-up questions, right? So one of the questions I think are really is really important is to ask, well, are there any alternatives to this, right? To just not accept this hysterectomy. Are there other procedures? And what does that look like? So what happens if I don't get the hysterectomy? How long will this go on? Is this the only cure for the condition that I have? Are there other ways to do it that would minimize risk? So asking sort of different questions to get at, you know, the information that will allow you to make an informed decision. Very nice. Do you have any memorable experiences from when you were at the bedside? So many. So many memorable experiences. You're talking to someone who is newly not at the bedside or not in clinical practice as much as I was before for a number of years. And so I'm not afraid to say that I miss it all the time. And so in terms of being memorable, like I said before, I knew I was dedicated to this field of birthing before I was even dedicated to being a nurse. And so that came well before I always knew that there was something really important about that moment of birth. And I saw it play out in my clinical practice. I would have to say, you know, you remember milestones like the first time you saw birth, the first vaginal birth you saw, the first C-section birth you saw, the first twins. But you also remember, unfortunately, you know, your first neonatal death, uh, the first time you saw an error that could have been, that was preventable. That could have been caught earlier. And so those are memorable, but not necessarily things you really want to remember. And so what I take away from those, even the negative experiences is that, you know, there's definitely a place for advocacy in healthcare. And I think that it starts with the care providers, certainly, but, you know, patient advocates are a really important part of the equation. And I think that those are the people that are going to create the better system from the ground up, right? In addition, of course, to all of the legal and governmental and, and you know, ministry directives that come from uh, above, let's say. But I think that, you know, patient advocacy and uh, advocating for your patient as a healthcare provider, I think there's nothing like it. And I think it has clearly been demonstrated that some of the errors that are happening in our healthcare system can be prevented by better ways of doing things. And it comes from, again, very grassroots sort of, the answers are there, but uh, 
yeah, I think that those those memorable experiences take me to to that place a lot and really seeing like the power of nursing and the power of doing the best we can for our patients. Can you give me an example of when you have seen patient advocacy work, when you've seen a patient speak up for themselves and it turned out to be for the good? I've had the opportunity to see, you know, patients who have come, for example, repeatedly to become assessed before a birth. I can remember one time a woman did come in to be assessed and it was late in her pregnancy, but, you know, you can come in. She just felt that something wasn't quite right. She didn't really have symptoms that were indicative of anything necessarily. And she did get the care that we would have given at that time, but nothing was showing on any of her lab tests. Nothing was showing on any of her ultrasounds. And she just kept coming repeatedly to be assessed, I would say, you know, late in pregnancy. And you can say that, you know, it was a fluke or not. But on one of those visits with her her vague symptoms, there was something wrong with the baby after, you know, after she did come in. And certainly, you know, when you see that as a care practitioner, you know, there's lots of not to say this happened, this happened, but you can imagine many people were like, you know, this, oh, here she comes again. There's nothing wrong with this baby. I, I think this is fine. We'll just look at the baby and send her home. But on one of those visits, there there really was something. So that's why I always tell you know patients, really trust your gut, advocate for what you're feeling, even though it seems to not make sense to you, really continue to say it because you might just save yourself from harm um, and from uh, something that might've been missed by some of our sort, sort of traditional ways of assessing patients. So I've seen that happen repeatedly. I've definitely seen family members advocate for their loved ones time and time again. And I've also seen the healthcare team really address it in in a formal way with team meetings and things like that. So the teams are quite responsive, I want to say, to patients and families who are in search of answers, repeatedly requesting some of these services in general. I've also seen some people not be listened to for a variety of reasons. Either they didn't have the support that they needed at the time, they didn't speak up, either because they were in part of a demographic that for lots of reasons don't speak up. Maybe they were recent immigrants. Maybe they were part of an equity-seeking group. Maybe they uh, didn't have the facility or know-how or the language in terms of health literacy. So, you know, those are particular populations, I think, of patients or people that we need to pay attention to and probably have a lot of different ways for supporting them when it comes to interactions with the healthcare system, because, you know, not everyone is going to be savvy and able to, to know, oh, I have this problem. Let me call this clinic. I know exactly what number to call. Oh, I don't have a family physician. I'm going to put myself on this list. You know, not, I would say majority of people don't exactly know um, how to maneuver all of that. So um, we got to really pay attention to some of that. I'm so glad you touched on that because I had a question here. I was thinking, are there certain groups that you've noticed a difference in how they interact with the system and maybe what you wish they would know to to do more of perhaps? Yeah, I I think, you know, a lot of the um, strategies that we've touched on thus far really been important uh, for a number of groups. I definitely have seen, because I had the opportunity in, in, in my last uh, role to work at a hospital that saw a lot of immigrant patients and such rich diversity, such rich cultural learnings, such great, I guess, knowledge from just being humble within those interactions. And what I think 
the healthcare teams learn through those interactions are there are all sorts of ways that, you know, recent immigrants are interacting with the healthcare system and no one's really helping them through it. Right. Um, so sure, there are programs and they can, you know, if they're lucky enough to have someone that is connected within, they can get some help. And so sometimes uh, you really do see that, you know, something as basic as, you know, who do I call for my baby's checkup after delivery, let's say, or, or just accepting everything that is, that is what the healthcare system is. So everything that's being proposed and not necessarily having that accompaniment or or having that accompaniment at the bedside in terms of doula services or nurse services or lactation services, things like that for a recent immigrant family. I've think that that's probably the demographic I see more as needing help. There are probably all sorts of other groups of people that I'm forgetting, but that's the group that comes to mind. Are there any myths or misconceptions about uh, navigating the healthcare system that you'd like to dispel? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think probably number one myth is that, or I would say misconception, is that the healthcare system and the people that work within it are infallible and that there aren't any errors that happen or that, you know, the doctor's always right. And so I see that a lot. And I think that, again, people should question what is happening and not be afraid to speak up. I know it can be intimidating and I know that it, it can be jarring, like we said before, in doctor's offices or or with a nurse that really looks like they know what they're doing and you're just going to not talk <laughs> because <laughs> you don't, you don't want to impact your care. I think that's a real fear as well. I think people get intimidated because they're, they think that they're going to have ne- negative sequelae to, the, to being cared for. And so I would say that I think People need to get out of the healthcare system what they put in, right? And so because we're in Canada, we forget that we actually pay for the system because it's a it's a public healthcare system. I think we probably would be more alert to some things if we were paying per per act, if we were actually shelling out money for all of our visits. But I think it sort of leads to a little bit of apathy around, you know, this is a system we have, we should be happy to have it. And then we go to appointments and just leave feeling like, mm, did I really get what I came here for? So I think people should remember that, you know, it is your system. You're paying for a service. Uh, we're all humans too. And if you don't ask for something, you're not going to get exactly what you need. So arm yourself with the right defenses and you'll get out what you need. Oh, I Hopefully. love that. I love that. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Cause you're not paying for a visit. It's just all seems free and like magic, but we know yes. it's not. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. coming from our taxes in a big way. If you went to your plumber and your plumber didn't do a good job or you felt like, I still don't take, know how to take care of this pipe, you'd ask questions, right? And you'd say, hey, I'm paying this plumber a lot of money per visit, you know, so we should kind of do the same thing uh, to the healthcare system or, or to the providers that we're interacting with because, you know, I'm, I'm of course using money, which, you know, people would have a lot of things to say in terms of equating our health to money and equating physicians to plumbers. But, (laughs) but I think, you know, I'm just saying that there's value there and there's value to getting what you need out of it. No, that's the fantastic illustration because you're right. If we paid him and the pipe's still leaking, we're going to be like, Hey guys, this pipe's still leaking. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Same thing, I guess. Hey, I still have this pain. What can we do about it? 
So what tricks or maybe tips do you tell people who are intimidated to speak up? So that actually has come out a lot that you're saying, you know, say something, (laughs) but like, do you actually have, I don't know, like wording or any little thing that you encourage them? They're like, okay, Kimani, I'm going to say something, but what exactly is it that you want me to say? I think some of the questions that I mentioned before would maybe use different wording in terms of asking always about the alternatives. And again, Again, you know, just knowing that that intimidation is there and you have to first acknowledge it. Right. So first acknowledge that you feel intimidated. Right. And that you may not come up with the best answers to the questions and that perhaps someone else should be doing the questioning. Right. And that's where that partner person comes in or that you write down some of your questions um, that you would need to feel good about that decision. So One thing that would be helpful is really even before you go to that appointment, what do I need to know so that I feel this is the right way forward? I know some people ask their physicians, if it was your daughter or family member, would you tell them to have this procedure? And that's a hard question to answer (laughs) for many healthcare providers. It is a step in the right direction, though. I think I would say yes, ask that question, maybe not to get an answer to it. But I think one thing it will do is tip the person off to the fact that you're asking questions about it and you're not super satisfied with what you're getting and you still have some hesitation around it. And I know that, you know, care providers in general, they may not know it in the moment, but if you, again, sort of hint to them through asking those questions that you need more, they will give the information that you're you're seeking. When you were working as a MCH nurse, were mm-hmm. there ever questions that you thought, gee, I really wish people would ask this more often? Like just things you realize people aren't thinking about this, but they, they should be thinking about this. I think asking is, is this the only way forward or is this, is there something else that we should do? That's one question. And I have seen it asked. I think that that's what tips people off to, oh, okay, I've got to come with a lot more information for this patient, (laughs) you know? And the other thing is not being afraid to ask the question and for fear of offending someone, Mm. certainly do it respectfully. I'm not saying not to do that because that can just kind of set up the wrong type of relationship in an acute situation, but certainly ask it respectfully and with thought for the other person. Same thing for them. They should be coming at you with thought for you, but maybe asking things like, you know, is this something that is commonly done? Is this the only option or are there alternatives? Have you seen many patients like me before? I've asked that question when I've had, you know, healthcare issues that I felt were tightly linked to being, you know, a black Canadian. And so I've asked that question of my physicians, you know, have you treated, you know, patients like me before? Uh, Just to get an idea of, you know, where the expertise was, should I be going somewhere else? Are there alternative care pathways that we should consider? Things like that. In terms of going somewhere else, if you want a second opinion, does the doctor you're sitting in front of, do they need to write you a referral for that? How do you actually go about getting your second opinion? My sense is no. However, within this healthcare system, it is not easy, the second opinion idea. I have to say, you know, you usually have, thank goodness you were able to see this doctor, right? Because everyone is full, hard to get appointments with specialists. And then you feel as though you should feel grateful for, you know, that 15 minute appointment. Mm -hmm. So it is really difficult for the person to say, uh, let me take a step back here 
And can I get a second opinion? I would say it's a good idea to tell the doctor that you're standing in front of, and I use doctor, but it could be Mm -hmm. another care provider, that you have a lot of questions. You're wondering if you can get a second opinion. They may have someone that they're going to suggest. You may or may not want to go with them. And uh, the other thing is that that second opinion needs to have all the information in front of them. Right. So your care provider needs to be able to provide you with that information so that you that can then do a follow up with a separate specialist. I do not think you need to make you don't need to have them sign off on it. They don't need to consent to it. But I think it's a really good idea to let them know because, I mean, it does a couple of things. One, it tells them, hey, you know what? She just needs more information about the the procedure. I do think that it also sets it up so that they are aware that perhaps you're not the only one that is asking for a second opinion about things that they're suggesting to you. And I think uh, the other thing is that you may, in the end, decide to come back to that original provider, right? And so when we're talking about time delays and, you know, booking for surgeries or booking for things like that, it's really important that that initial one does know. But I do think it's a good idea, especially if it is a surgery that can wait, that you have a little bit of time that you can um, decide uh, on it. And I think it goes to you feeling comfortable with the procedure or what is being suggested. Now it becomes a little different when it is a procedure that is very urgent and it needs to be done in the moment. And so I've seen people try to navigate this while they are eight centimeters dilated in labor (laughs) and need to have, you know, more, uh, need to have a quote unquote second opinion from a physician who may or may not be there and try to navigate that with the, with the team. Again, it, you know, there are times that it can be done as well. So, you know, you may want to say like, is there a way that I can get a second opinion? I've had patients ask for that as well. And again, not to feel bad if they do not have that. It's always great to have someone with you in labor as well. I just want to put a plug in there for you. you. So, because you may not be, you know, in the best position to advocate for yourself. And it's always great to have someone uh, there. With you. When you said, so I can decide, for example, if I need to go elsewhere, were you referring yes. to second opinions or was that just totally just move your care elsewhere? Both. Both. Okay. I was referring to second opinions, but also move your care elsewhere. I've had, again, many friends, family members, or colleagues who have asked me what I thought about that type of uh, move. And so I don't know if you're aware, but you know, you don't have to have a baby with a physician. You can have a baby with the midwife. You can have it. So there's a lot of transitionary care that's happening prenatally where people are deciding, am I going to have my baby with a midwife? Am I going to have my baby with a um, family doctor? Am I going to have my baby with a specialist? Is there a reason that I need to see a high-risk specialist? Is that a valid reason? Or can I just have a baby at home with a midwife, right? So there's all sorts of those questions going around and people really need to feel, the birthing person really needs to feel comfortable with whatever decision is and whatever options are being are, are being made available for them. Right. When you talk about maternal and child health and the maternal mortality rates in America, we know are terrible for Black women compared to the rest of the population. 
Is it like that here in Canada? I do not have those numbers in front of me, of course. Mm-hmm. But is there a difference in the rates in Canada? No one knows because we in Canada <laughs> tend to not count those things. And so this is a problem when you're looking at anything related to equity and racial inequities, I will say, in Canada is that, you know, if you don't have the data, then you can ignore the issue because there isn't a problem then, you know? And so, you know, our hunch is always that it's, probably similar and that, you know, much like our U.S. friends, the reason for that is or are the inequities that exist in the healthcare system, right? And so there needs to be something done systemically to address some of these things in terms of addressing those inequities. I will say that, you know, a lot of the data we have on inequities for a different, you know, uh, complications arising from pregnancy are similar to our U.S. counterparts. So, of course, it would bear out that the mortality rates are going to be as similar or also more for Black Canadians, Indigenous community as well. Are there any closing thoughts that you'd like to share now that we're wrapping up our discussion? I'd have to say that it's funny I think the pandemic, the last two years, and certainly sort of the systemic things that we've seen over the last two years, I would say, you know, I would put up our failed healthcare system, which has really been uh, under a spotlight recently, has been really discouraging to those of us who are involved in the healthcare system. But I'm still very encouraged by it. And I'm still very encouraged by nursing because I see the difference that nurses can make every day. I've seen it even more in the last two years, but I've always been very convinced that nurses and nurse practitioners, bedside nurses, academic nurses are really the force behind the system. And I think that are really powerful and accompanying patients to be partners in their own care. So the nurse has a really important role in all of this, in what you're trying to do with the podcast, with educating and informing patients. And I think that it's really powerful. It can make the difference between having a disease that really gets the better of you and that you feel despondent and ill-equipped and ill-advised to, you know, flourishing and really, you know, surviving either an acute or chronic illness. So I think I wanted to say that, you know, I am convinced more than ever, really, that nurses are the force for the healthcare system and really supporting it at all costs. And I would love for everyone else to know that. And I mean, government bodies as well and all of our healthcare partners, right? And so that recognition of that vital expertise that nurses bring to their care is really important so that we don't lose them and so that we are nurturing that for future generation of nurses. Beautiful thoughts. Thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe, Kimani. It was a pleasure having you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Some key takeaways included, be sure to trust your instincts, ask for what you need, and don't go to appointments alone. Don't forget, I have created a downloadable medication list for you. To get it, all you need to do is click on the links in the show notes and you'll be able to download it. In addition, please remember that we are launching the Good Health Cafe Lounge. The Good Health Cafe Lounge is a place for you to interact with me and other fellow Good Health Cafe listeners live. And you get to ask your questions, share your experiences, get some tips and tricks. And to find out more, all you need to do is 
reach out to me again via a link in the show notes that says Good Health Cafe Lounge. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.